Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from South Africa and extending our topic from last week regarding the impact of climate change on women in Africa is Professor Claire Kelso, who heads up the Department of Geography, Environmental Management and Energy Studies at the University of Johannesburg. She also lectures in fields of climatology, environmental ethics and justice, as well as environmental problems and sustainable development. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Prof Kelso, to begin with, the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP26, concluded a few days ago. It really points out that no one on the planet is immune from climate change. Following their Gender Day session, several countries made announcement to address climate change as well as gender inequality in an interrelated fashion. For example, Sierra Leone committed to addressing long-standing discriminatory land tenure practices, and Nigeria pledged to expand its gender action plan under five climate change priority areas. Furthermore, globally, the United Nations has found that women are more vulnerable to the effects of climate change than men, partly because they constitute a large majority of the world's poor and depend on small-scale farming for their livelihoods, which is particularly vulnerable to climate change. Addressing gender inequality has also been proven to advance efforts to tackle climate change. What are some of your views regarding gender and vulnerability to climate change in Africa? Well, first of all, I think just to reiterate that women are definitely seen to be um, more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change often um, than men. Uh, and this really is because of the intersectionality with additional vulnerabilities that women often experience. So I'll use a, a rural example, but if, for example, women do not have access to land ownership in the same way as men or control over productive land in the same way as, as men within a particular culture or a particular society, then um, that can aggravate the impacts of um, climate change uh, on women specifically and on things like food supply for the family, which women often hold a disproportionate responsibility for. Uh, in a lot of households, women tend to use more um, income or more of their um, earnings or production to look after and care for children within a household, or they um, can also carry a disproportionate kind of burden for um, land-based livelihoods. So maybe they are the ones that are responsible for something like uh, the farming or production of agricultural crops. And so then any impacts of climate change, which aggravate um, something like food production. So let's say, for example, um, one of the um, predicted impacts of climate change would be uh, increased frequency and intensity of droughts, also increased frequency and intensity of flooding. Um, it sounds contradictory, but it's not. It's just that there's a higher energy in the climate system. And so any intense weather phenomenon will increase as a result. 
And so increased frequency of drought, if women are more responsible for food production for families, then women are going to feel that um, impact disproportionately. Similarly, if within the household they have less power or control over food supply itself, something like um, a secondary impact of climate change that involves an increase in food pricing might also then disproportionately affect women. Um, And so women kind of are experiencing this multiple levels of vulnerability, and then those would be aggravated by climate change. So climate change is not directly causing the kind of power dynamics that women are experiencing, but it's being filtered through those power dynamics. And so women then can experience the negative impacts uh, disproportionately. And often that filters down to children in families as well. So regarding gender and climate change, it's kind of my strong opinion that we need to be tackling solutions to um, the issue of climate change that do take gender into consideration. Also, policies maybe to counteract the impact of climate change also need to to take uh, kind of women's vulnerability into account. Sometimes the policies or the uh, adaption policies um, will be targeted towards men, again, maybe in farming communities, and they're not taking uh, the vulnerability of women into account. So policies to counteract climate change as well should, should really focus on gender aspects. Within the policy elements, I really do hope that there are views where we actually see implementation coming forward. Because to be quite frank, there are a ton of policies the world over, particularly from a South African point of view. It's often one of our areas of weaknesses in terms of applying them. In your answer, you really expressed that the flux in climate has a significant impact on sustenance farming, which, as we've just unpacked, is is one of the core vulnerabilities for women who are working the land in, in the continent. One of your students, Matilda Azong, conducted research on women in the Bamenda Highlands region of Cameroon. Can you tell us more about this study? Yes, absolutely. So, um, yeah, um, she's now uh, Dr. Matilda Azong because she completed her PhD. And her research was based in the Bamenda Highlands region of the Cameroon. And really just looking at the influence of climate change on female farmers to look at the way in which kind of structural dynamics within the household and within the community mean that women um, were impacted disproportionately by climate change. So in the case of the Bermuda Highlands region in the Cameroon, the way in which livelihoods are structured is that women are predominantly responsible for the agricultural aspects of um, the farming that is done there. Men tend to be more involved in cash-based crop farming where that is uh, a possibility, whereas women are really doing the agriculture for the households. So the methodology that she used in this particular study is very interesting. And I think it actually also talks, since we're talking around gender issues, I think it actually talks to a great methodology for doing research with women. And in this case, she used a life history methodology, which is almost a storytelling methodology where she spoke predominantly to um, sort of older women in um, the communities that she looked at and just elicited a life story in terms of looking at what they do, how they use their time, their involvement in farming. 
And then from there, looking at how they've experienced changes in climate um, and how those have then impacted on their livelihoods and their ability to supply food to their families. It's really, again, a a story looking at how women are disproportionately affected in terms of climate change, because it was found that it was other um, vulnerabilities that really added to the way in which the changes in climate were impacting on them. So what was being experienced there was a, a late onset of rains, which directly affected agriculture. So once the the seed was in the ground, if there was a late onset of rains and if there was quite high temperatures, the seed wouldn't germinate in the way that it had in the past. Um, And then just looking further at their life stories, it was found that women's education had not been prioritized in the communities that she looked at. And so women had fewer opportunities to diversify their incomes or to take on uh, other activities that would generate money. They also didn't own the land that they worked on. The land was owned um, either by the husband or the husband's family or brothers. It was always men even where it was passed on via the mother's line, it was passed on from uncle um, to son. It wasn't passed on through through um, women at all. There was really only one case that she found where a woman had inherited land and it became her own. And then she had a lot more control over the decision-making with regards to agriculture. Um, so things like land ownership, lack of access to education, uh, lack of access to any kind of um, loans tended then to impact women disproportionately um, to men. And so uh, the effect on food supply that women were involved in generating was, again, channeled through these other vulnerabilities, if you like, that are associated with gender. So those were the findings, quite a lot more complex than that, because Um, She looked at individual life stories uh, and also traced some of the aspects of how women coped with their circumstances. But those were kind of the key things that emerged. All of those factors that you've shared and and spoken about are, are really critical from a point of view of being able to empower women. And it honestly frustrates me that we we're still having these conversations that women have less access to education, that women have less ownership over the land that they work and the impact that it has as this ripple effect, which is negative and holds them back. Yes, no, very much so. And then there were, because on the one side, she looked at vulnerability. On the other side, she looked at resilience and certain things that emerged like um, women managing to form co-ops and groups and working together uh, to invest better in agricultural inputs that was then seen to actually reduce vulnerability and as I say this one um, lady story that just came through where she had by just simply because there wasn't anybody else to inherit the land she had actually inherited her own property which was really not a general narrative that emerged but in this one particular case she was actually then able to really improve her circumstances. And another lady was able to go back to studying and start teaching, but she had actually been able to um, obtain better school education. There you could see that the trajectory was quite different in those two stories. So that's why I say it's quite also quite an interesting methodology because it, it allows the sort of tracing of a much longer period of time um, in women's lives to mm-hmm. see where certain factors actually can completely change uh, the trajectories. But yes, we are still talking about the same things. Um, And 
even in the in the case of South Africa, although I think there are more opportunities and education certainly is more prioritized for women um, in South Africa than in certain other African countries. But we are still talking about some of these same additional vulnerabilities for women. It really means that we've still got a lot more work to do. Hi, I'm Zonke Dikana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Today, we're talking to Professor Claire Kelso, who heads up the Department of Geography, Environmental Management and Energy Studies at the University of Johannesburg. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. In this conversation now, it, it reminds me of a report that I read many years ago from UNESCO, which remarked on the fact that even basic levels of literacy and numeracy have a profound effect on the well-being of women, whether that's from a point of view of greater control over fertility rates, uh, reduced child mortality, improved health management and poverty reduction. And in the case that we're talking about now from from a farming perspective of being able to be aware of of the circumstances, understanding that when there is climate change and the different intensities that you refer to from a drought perspective, as well as from a flood perspective, the impact that that has on food supply. Part of the study also mentioned that an additional year of schooling yields a 10% increase in, in earnings. You're a professor at University of Johannesburg now. As a successful woman, please describe to us what role education has played in your life and career development. Yeah, no, so obviously working at a university and having studied uh, a lot, (laughs) um, education's played a huge role in my own life. I initially obviously did my undergraduate degree. And interestingly enough, when I was preparing for for this uh, chat that we're having today, I was thinking that it was actually my mother who paid for my education. She was insistent that I got at least a qualification. She said to me, you know, you just You want um, to be able to have your independence if you need it. Uh, And so she was quite determined that I got at least an undergraduate degree. She hadn't studied at university. Um, And so, look, education has been significant in my life. And also ever since sort of starting at university, I've really enjoyed it. And I feel like it's a real privilege to be able to study and to be able to study continuously, actually, because that's what we do when we're working um, at universities. You're constantly being able to participate in new projects and investigate different issues and hopefully contribute to practical solutions for problems within society, especially working in um, an environmental field. But I guess education has really then allowed me to be employed in uh, the education sector and um, just having an independent income uh, means that you have a lot more power and control over your own decision making. You can purchase property. For me, it's meant that I can contribute to my son's education in a way that I wanted to and also just to really be able to work in an interesting and dynamic place, which has been fantastic because being at a university is like that. We're constantly researching new issues and and 
um, hopefully better researching issues that have been ongoing, like some of the gender ones that we're talking about. Um, and also something I was thinking about is that, you know, um, when I was growing up, there were often discussions on politics. Um, my dad worked at that stage for the Rand Daily Mail and there would be discussions about politics and about South Africa, but they were always kind of reserved for men at brides and parties and family events. Whereas now I find myself involved in all of those kind of discussions on things like politics, climate, the way in which the world should be transforming into a more sustainable space. And so I guess education for me has allowed me to be part of those conversations that when I was growing up seemed to be more reserved exclusively for men. Thanks for sharing the impact that education has had on you personally and also expressing the, I would say, almost the, the inclusivity approach that you can participate in any sphere of your choosing based on the power of the education that you have. We've spoken a lot today about the power of education. Can you share some of your views on education as a, a tool in the hands of women to help change not only their lives, but also the lives of their children for the better? Yeah, so I think that, um, you know, education, it provides you maybe with the capacity to um, be employed, to earn an income and to maybe create change in your own life, as you're saying. Um, but I think also as we become more involved in an education space, we get to define the priorities that are used or, or that research focuses on. I feel that as a woman in this space, we often more focused on what are the impacts likely to be on people, on communities, and how can these be mitigated in such a way that takes people into account and people's interests into account. So I think we have the opportunity as we progress in careers uh, in the education space specifically to alter and change the focus and to really look for real life solutions to problems um, rather than maybe just focusing on developing a better tool to identify the problem in the first place. And I think that is if we kind of start to shift the space once we um, work it within the space so I think that really um, ed education and participating in um, systems of education allow us to maybe shift and transform the priorities uh, as to what changes can be made and what maybe more optimistic um, solutions are possible because often we get locked into just focusing um, particularly with climate change, there's a risk that we get quite crisis orientated in the way in which we have the conversation. And then I think as, as women in the space, we have the opportunity to sort of start being solution focused um, with a degree of optimism, which actually tends to motivate people towards change more effectively than just um, crisis narrative all the time. I really like what you said about going towards solving real world problems and deriving solutions. And also the fact of being able to change our thinking when something's not working and to not be hung up on, on the past of, of when something may have worked one way, but adjusting to the dynamics of the society that we're in today. I mean, reflecting earlier on our conversation offline on the impact of, of COVID and rather than trying to do what we did in the physical space as a face-to-face -face environment and replicate that online, it's about coming up with 
new solutions and redesigning our, our thinking processes. Yes, very much so. And I think there are, um, you know, opportunities within that for um, transformative change. So looking at, I think you said earlier that um, South Africa has a, a tendency of making quite good commitments, but then not necessarily putting those into action. And I think what's really important is to look in the context of climate change to, to see it as an opportunity to look for genuine transformative change that actually meets the needs of more vulnerable groups rather than just, okay, so we have a carbon tax. We do have that as an instrument to reduce uh, carbon dioxide. We already have it. It can be increased in terms of the um, cost of it, but that is not necessarily going to bring in a transformative change where people shift away from carbon. It may just be that large polluters can afford to pay more um, and polluting the atmosphere just becomes more expensive, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're shifting away um, to green energy solutions. So a broader kind of range of solutions uh, that actually looks at transforming some of the values within society and transforming, for example, gender dynamics, empowering women, looking at localized solutions that may bring something like food production together with a more nutritional diet, together with a lower carbon footprint. That is, to me, the type of thinking that I, I think we should be looking for more of uh, within the context of climate change. So we have this huge global problem, but the way in which we solve it could also um, solve some of our other big societal issues. And I feel like women especially have a lot to contribute within that because often we're looking for solutions uh, that are solutions for ourselves, our families, and uh, the environment at large, which is kind of a sustainability focus. And I think we have a contribution uh, to make there. So the nature of the solutions that people who are solution focused come up with, and I think women do play a good role in that, uh, can be quite different. Hi, this is Lira, South African Afro soul singer and songwriter. You're listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amelia Malka on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy. Today, we're talking to Professor Claire Kelso, who heads up the Department of Geography, Environmental Management and Energy Studies at the University of Johannesburg. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Prof Kelso, we've spoken about a, a number of factors from a, an economic point of view, from using education as a tool of, of empowerment. But there are some factors which we, as women, are still confronted negatively with. So, for instance, women's participation in the labor force obviously has important economic contributions, yet there's persistent inequalities. Early in the conversation, you highlighted the fact that whilst women work the land, the majority of them don't own the land. And from um, uh, this point of view of in inequalities, it sometimes also contributes to elements of unequal pay, working in lower ranking roles, being underrepresented in managerial positions in more of the, the, the urban and, and corporate space. In your opinion, what types of interventions could be put in place 
to help remedy inequality in the work environment? Um, it's a difficult question because often in places where we sort of talk the right language, gender inequality can be quite hidden. Uh, it's not necessarily as overt as it might be where we have very, very gender-specific roles within a particular cultural practice, for example. So whereas in the workplace, it's generally not overt. And so often it's a lot more subtle um, and it can just be simple things like, people's confidence being undermined. What I've noticed certainly in my years in the education space is that women often just work harder than their male counterparts in the same positions. They just put in extra working hours. They're the ones often that will volunteer for certain tasks that don't necessarily get recognized when it comes to promotion. So often women will have kind of slower career advancement that takes place not necessarily because they're putting in fewer working hours, um, but just because of the way in which they will take on tasks and work particularly hard at tasks that aren't necessarily recognized. One example would be in, in the educational space that a lot of uh, female colleagues tend to prioritize their teaching and really teaching effectively and how well that then passes down to students. But we tend to get rewarded more for research outputs and research outputs in high impact journals and a whole lot of um, kind of matrices. And so... How you overcome that, I think talking about it is really important. And I feel that women um, who have achieved success within the academic space or any space, workplace space, should actually try rather than perpetuating the system that they may be fought through um, to reach where they've reached is to reevaluate the system and be maybe more supportive of other women coming through. Sometimes I have seen it where, where women have really fought to get to the top of their space. They end up perpetuating the battles that they kind of fought to get there in the first place. And I feel like once you've achieved a position, it's good to re-examine and transform that space and see how it maybe could be easier or better for people coming or more rewarding for people coming through behind you. Um, and then I do think there's a need for greater transparency. Often we don't even know whether men in our space are paid higher than us. I have a friend not in education, she's in finance, but once her salary was brought up to the same level as um, the men that she was working with, her salary had to be increased by 60%. Gosh. So the first element that you spoke about is that we're going to keep perpetuating these vicious cycles if someone doesn't step up to the plate from a leadership point of view and start changing the metrics or the KPIs that have been ruling these systems for years. And then the second point, when you spoke about your, your friend in the finance sector, that her salary increased by 60% to be put up to a level that is equal to her male peers, that is just shocking on, on an astronomical level that we have been grossly underpaid. Yes, and I think in her sector, um, it became evident through a merger that took place. But um, I mean, in a lot of sectors, there just isn't that transparency. And so you honestly don't know. But I mean, I think um, the statistics for the country mm -hmm. still show that women are comparatively underpaid in comparison to their male counterparts. So that transparency is really important. But, and you know, the people that do know is the company. 
I think they have an obligation to be looking across the board and the wage bill that they're paying out and ensure that people are remunerated accordingly. Yes, no, definitely. I think definitely that is uh, vital. And, and, and I guess as women to, to really kind of challenge these things once you reach a position or even beforehand, actually, to just start challenging and asking the right questions, we often tend to be quite um, quiet and tend to focus on work with the belief that you'll you'll reach a certain point, but maybe we should be investigating these things from the outset. Very important points to, to consider. Hi, my name is Yvonne Chakataka and I'm UNICEF and Rollback Malaria Goodwill Ambassador. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity, a program that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in the struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, a program against social ills such as racism, socio-economic class division and gender-based violence. Womanity, Women in Unity, presented by Dr. Amalia Malka every week on this day at this time. Today, we're talking to Professor Claire Kelso, who heads up the Department of Geography, Environmental Management and Energy Studies at the University of Johannesburg. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. The question that I'd like to ask you now is about your personal journey. Some of our guests who have reached tremendous achievements in their lifetimes speak about the factors that have contributed to their success, bringing up aspects of perseverance, hard work, family values. In your opinion, what would you say have been some of the key drivers to your success? So definitely I was raised with the value of hard work. Um, I've always just worked hard. Um, I know, and it's quite a funny thing now, and I think I get almost an imposter syndrome because people go, oh, you're a professor, you must be very smart. And I'm like thinking, no, (laughs) Um, I've actually just kind of worked hard right throughout school, throughout university, and and it's um, just been a path of learning and growing. And kind of overcoming a a lack of confidence and a shyness. And that, I would say, is something that's continuously ongoing for me and in my life. It's just really been a journey of kind of hard work, but I have been very passionate about what I do and what I study. So I really um, am passionate about the environment, about um, environmentally related kind of societal changes, Uh, about conservation. I really enjoy studying the natural environment. So I've been a student of climatology and historical climatology and the uh, natural environment. So including wildlife and conserved natural spaces. And so I've been very, very passionate about that. And I think that's been one driving factor. Um, And then the interaction with students as a lecturer, I just find really, really motivating, just seeing the kind of enjoyment as people start to engage with knowledge. I think we often taught um, that we are receivers of knowledge. So we study and then we say back what we've learned, basically. But when people start to really engage with their knowledge, to challenge the knowledge, to realize that 
their own learning that they're bringing or their own life experience that they're bringing to a classroom environment to talk about, let's say, um, climate change, for example, that their own experience of whether the weather that's changed and rivers that have changed in places where they're coming from, that that is actually part of their knowledge base. That has also always been um, a driving factor for me. And I think university just really stimulated me. You have such an applied outlook in, in your approach to, to learning and being able to contribute and also to look at uh, preservation aspects from an environmental uh, point of view. Please tell us about some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up. Um, well, again, I suppose, well, my, my mother obviously has been a, a real inspiration for me. Um, I, I think a lot of women will say that, uh, and, and men, actually, to be fair. Um, but she's just a very um, strong person, a very kind of human-orientated person. Um, and she's had a lot of hurdles in her own life, um, and I think just her kind of strength was very empowering for me. And she, she, as I say, was the one who really encouraged me to go to university. Uh, didn't really give me an option initially. I, I did a, a just one post uh, school year. Um, and then it came time to kind of make a decision of studying further or just starting working. And my mom really just encouraged me. She even said to me, just do one year. Um, I think she looks back now because I've never kind of left. I carried on studying right through to PhD and then I've been working in a university ever since. Um, so, but but she was like, just do one year and if you really don't enjoy it, then you can stop. But she was very um, uh, strong in the idea that I should have a, an additional qualification so that I could have an independence that she didn't have having not had an education. So I would say that um, that was very pivotal. Uh, and then just university itself, um, from starting it, I really just loved it. And I loved the engagement and interaction with uh, with lecturers and with peers and with the material that we were studying. And so that really was just pivotal is that I kind of really did almost fall in love with the learning process. And this fact that you weren't being told everything, but you were now being enabled to find out things uh, for yourself or investigate things for yourself. And then um, I've also just found various students that I've worked with completely inspiring. I remember a student that I supervised for a postgraduate qualification who was determined she had studied everything with bursaries and she was determined that as soon as she got a salary, she was building a house for her mother who, had, who was a car guard actually and had supported her with food and shelter right throughout her degree, but she was determined the first thing she was doing was making sure that her mother had um, a house. So just really um, inspiring kind of colleagues and, and students as well. Those are such great stories that I find, and, and listening to you, it, it's not only about enriching yourself but it's a contribution that you can make towards others and recognizing what they've done to you or for you in support structures. We are unfortunately running out of time. So in closing our conversation today, please, will you share a few words of encouragement or motivation that you'd like to pass on to 
girls and women who are listening to us on the continent? Yes, thank you. Um, so I guess I just want to say that you that you can achieve your goals, that working hard is very important, but resilience is equally important. Um, we often get knocked down by people from outside and by our circumstances, but also sometimes we can knock ourselves down um, and shrink away from some of our goals because we believe um, that we are unable to achieve them. And I think, um, I guess, my greatest lesson really is just a form of resilience, which involves just showing up. Half the time, I think my head is saying to me, you can't do this. You know you can't do this. Um, but actually, I'm like, well, you're just going to show up. So whether it was writing my PhD or giving a lecture to 300 first years, which is very intimidating, I have to say, um, just having that resilience where you say to yourself, I'm just going to show up and keep showing up and not listening to some of the negative input, be it coming from outside or um, from inside your own head, uh, and just keep taking the next step and um, you will definitely grow. And education is, is an enormous privilege. Um, I think uh, just really to make the most of the opportunities that you get in life um, in the context of education and surrounding yourself with people that um, support you, I think is also really valuable. Um, yeah, I think, and, and just in the context bringing us back to where we started with climate change is that I think women really have a vital role in transformative change that is in the interests of people around us, but also in the interests of um, the planet and sustainability and looking at preserving our futures going forwards uh, and preserving good futures going forward. So I see women as having a vital role in that. Um, and I think it's important to keep that in mind and notice the influence that we have on the circumstances and people around us. Thanks for that great message. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks so much, Amelia. It's been really a, an interesting discussion and I've really appreciated uh, being able to sort of share some of the insights that I've got uh, through research and teaching over the years. Um, and I'm enjoying this gender-based perspective looking at environmental problems because I think it's really important. Um, and we often assume scientific issues to be gender neutral, but in actual fact, they are not. So I really appreciate the opportunity. And in fact, what I've learned over the last eight years of doing the show is nothing is gender neutral. Absolutely true. Very, very true. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we've been talking to Professor Claire Kelso, who heads up the Department of Geography, Environmental Management and Energy Studies at the University of Johannesburg.